welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name's Craig Forces, and over Zoom again, I'm here with Stephanie Carvin. And Stephanie, we are here for another one of our series on the Chart of Rights and Freedoms called the Muskoka Chair Chat. And this week, our animal is... Geese, because we're talking about a whole bunch of different rights, a collection of rights, and so we really needed to have a flock for purposes of our... Not a gaggle. Well, that that raises a question. What would you call a bunch of rights? I mean, is it like a precedent, a precedent of rights? A a lawyer of rights? A pride. A pride. A pride. A A murder of rights. A a A duty of rights? (laughs) (laughs) But they really are a gaggle. Okay, a gaggle of rights. So I I think maybe, Stephanie, we may want to start just by rehearsing exactly what we've covered so far, right? So it's been a couple of weeks since our last chapter in our Muskoka chair chat. There have been a couple of additional podcasts that we've had that have intervened. And so I think maybe we want to just situate where we are in the conversation. And, and so maybe, Charisma, we could just start with you. So we're marching through a bunch of rights, but the, the Charter actually organizes these rights. So what have we seen in terms of our past discussion and what are we likely to see in today's session going forward? Sure. I would like to just say that during my vacation, I was seated in an actual Muskoka chair on a lake. And I think my enjoyment of that was heavily uh, influenced by this podcast. So thank you, Craig. <laughs> That's why we do this, really. To have so, people's summer experience. So the, the, tra- the charter is structured in a particular way. As we discussed in an earlier podcast, the first section of the charter, section one, is interesting because it simultaneously guarantees all the rights and freedoms that follow, but it also says that all those rights and freedoms are subject to reasonable limits, which is interesting. So you have rights, but they can be limited, consistent with the charter. Uh, And we've talked about how the section one analysis goes. Then you move into the substantive, the rights and freedoms, the actual constitutional guarantees that individuals enjoy. And they are divided into, you could say, general topics. So The first sort of topic or basket are the fundamental freedoms, which we talked about, which is expression, religion, assembly, association. That's all under Section 2. Then we have the democratic rights, which are our rights to vote and rules about the sittings and calling of the legislative branch of government. So Parliament, the House of Commons, and the legislative assemblies in the various provinces. That's Sections 3 through 5. Then Section 6, which are the mobility rights, which gives citizens the right to enter and leave Canada really at will, and also gives both citizens and permanent residents the right to enter into different provinces for the purposes of taking up occupations. We then have the legal rights. The legal rights are a big basket under the Charter. So the legal rights include Section 7, which we talked about, and then Sections 8 through 14 which deal with a host of things that generally make the most sense in the context of people's interaction with criminal justice. So things like search and seizure, the right against arbitrary detention, a whole host of trial rights. But it's not only limited to criminal justice because the wording of Section 7, the life, liberty, and security of the person, has been interpreted to extend somewhat beyond pure criminal trial processes. But those are the legal rights. That's a big section of the charter. Then uh, a single section that is nonetheless extremely important is section 15, which are the equality rights. And you then have another big basket of rights, sections 16 through 23, 
which are the language rights. And an interesting point about the way that the charter is organized is first, there's no hierarchy among the rights. So no single right is more important or will be treated as somehow paramount over another right in any case. But they do enjoy a different relationship to the notwithstanding clause, section 33, which we talked about, because only some of the rights in the charter can be subject to the notwithstanding clause. The fundamental freedoms, the legal rights, sections 7 through 14, and the equality rights in sections 15. So the other rights, the democratic rights, the mobility rights, and the language rights are not subject to section 33. So you you cannot suspend them through legislation for any period of time. That's great. So now we have a renewed understanding of the architecture. And as you've said, we've spoken quite a bit about Section 33 and Section 1 near the outset of our conversation. We spent an episode on Section 2, the fundamental rights of expression and association and also freedom of religion. Uh, We spent a session on Section 7, uh, which is a legal right, but it's such a vast ambit, as we described, that it really has exceeded the remit of simply a right that arises in criminal context. And now today we're going to walk through the remaining legal rights very quickly because there are a number of them, just the headlines. Where would you start the conversation about legal rights? Yeah, as I said, it's an enormous basket of rights. Just the way that they're structured, if you get away from section seven and you go through sections eight through 14, they track the criminal justice process in terms of things that the state can and can't do in the course of investigating, say, crime. So search and seizure, Section 8, is obviously an important limitation. You have a right against unreasonable search and seizure. And I would interject, we're going to actually do a a separate drill down on Section 8 outside of this series. We're going to have, a. I think at this point, Stephanie, we were talking about two episodes. We were going to have a special episode on Section 8 as a constitutional right, and then a separate episode on the issue of warrants and warrantry which meet the standards of Section 8. And so, because it's such a vast topic. This is is Craig's polite way of saying Section 8 is a hot mess when it comes to national security. And so that's something we want to do a super deep dive down at a later date, sometime in the near future. So so Section 8, the investigative process. Section 9, the right against arbitrary detention or imprisonment, which you have a right against that at, at any time, period. Then you get into the more formal justice proceedings. So section 10 is on arrest or detention, you have a number of rights that kick in. You have the right to be informed why you have been arrested or detained. You have the right to retain and instruct counsel without delay. You have the right to seek habeas corpus, which is an ancient right to show that you have been unlawfully detained and to have the court order your release. That's all on on arrest or detention. Then you get the trial process. So you've been charged with with an offense. You have a number of rights, the most important of which is you have the right to a fair trial. And you have the right to have that trial happen within a reasonable period of time. That's one thing that we could talk about because that's had especially high profile of late because of a number of Supreme Court decisions articulating the scope of that right to trial within a reasonable time. You have the right not to be found guilty of the same offense twice. You have the right to a certain standard of punishment. So if the punishment has changed over the course of the proceeding, you have the right to the lower standard of punishment. And then 
that's a trial process, then section 12, you have the right against cruel and unusual punishment, which we can talk about, which also you know, relates to things like mandatory minimum sentences. Uh, then we have a couple of other procedural rights, so rights for witnesses in sections 13 and 14, including the right to an interpreter. So you can see there is a logic to how the legal rights are, are, are structured. Uh, some of them are invoked much more frequently than others. So it's not that these legal rights sprang from nowhere. So the Charter was introduced in 1982, and many of these rights were well-known and encapsulated not least in the American constitutional tradition, but also in the international instruments like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and then the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. So these are well-known, well-trod rights. Some of them have their origin in the ancient common law of the United Kingdom. So what has happened in terms of the understanding of these rights since 1982 in terms of the courts and especially the Supreme Court's construal of these rights? If you look at the phrases, they're very short phrases, right? But there's been a significant meaning that's been read into these phrases. So what would be some of the highlights in terms of the jurisprudence that have employed these concepts? So in some cases, the court has really stuck quite closely to the actual text of the right. The right against self-incrimination, for example, which we won't get into because it's quite complicated, but it's been construed fairly narrowly, not as broadly as people might think in terms of the right not to be compelled to testify. But other rights, I would point to the fair trial right and the right to be presumed innocent have been an opening by which the court has really looked at, in some cases, the actual content of criminal offenses together with their analysis of Section 7, but this principle of fundamental justice really allowing them to look at what is the mental state that has been prescribed for a crime like murder, and what might the Charter have to say about that. Another one that has been very striking is the right against cruel and unusual punishment or treatment, which I think it's good that you have noted that's a right that's been with us a long time. And you can look at it in a number of ways. So cruel and unusual punishment or treatment could be related strictly to things that you do to a person physically. So punishments that are now would be considered barbaric, right? Castration, flogging. You could make the arguments capital punishment itself could be considered cruel and unusual. That's a, a, the easier question under Section 12. The more interesting question is, can a term of imprisonment by its length constitute cruel and unusual punishment, particularly in the case of a mandatory sentence of imprisonment where Parliament has set the floor for the punishment, a judge has no discretion to go below that floor, can we say that in of itself could constitute cruel and unusual punishment such that the mandatory nature of it has to be struck down. And that's something that the courts have been grappling with since 1987. And the short answer is, yes, it is possible that a term of imprisonment by its length alone, not the conditions under which it's served, its length alone can be cruel and unusual. And that's uh, spawned a lot of case law and a lot of controversy. So Charisma, this is the context in which someone is guilty of an offense but their circumstances are such that their degree of moral culpability requires some moderation of the sentence, but that's not possible because the, 
the floor is set by statute. That's really what is that issue here that judges aren't allowed to judge the circumstances because Parliament has said no matter what, this is a sentence you impose. Is that really what's that issue here? Well, it's it's one way to look at it. It's a one way ratchet. So the judges can say that the moral culpability is more than the minimum, but they can't go below it. And what the court has said is this is really important. Even if it's a proportionate and fair sentence for the person who is in front of the court, the accused, if you can reasonably imagine someone to whom this sentence would be a cruel and unusual punishment, that in and of itself renders the law unconstitutional. So it's like the zero-sum analysis. If you want to impose a mandatory sentence of imprisonment, parliament, you can do that. But if we can reasonably imagine any person for whom that sentence would be shocking, the term they use is outrage the standards of decency, shocks the conscience. It's a high bar, but it has been satisfied. Even if the person in front of us is not that situation, one strike parliament and you're out, the mandatory nature of the sentence is struck down. It doesn't mean the person will not be sent to jail but it means that the judge has discretion to go under the mandatory uh, sentence. I just have a quick question. This is, again, more of the views and questions from Oshawa. Can you have a sentence that is cruel? Can you have a sentence that is unusual, but you can't put the two together? Or is it's not, you can have one or the other. It's really, if it's cruel or unusual, it's out. Yeah, that's a great question. The answer is that we use the phrase together. The, I'm going to really blow um, Oshawa's minds. The, the way that the court has described it is to say it is the compendious expression of a norm. So we don't separate out and say, is it cruel but not unusual? Does it have to be both? We just use that as a marker to denote the kind of sentence that is intolerable. And that's why when you get into sheer length, right, for a lot of people, I think it's just the length of time. How can that seem so far removed from barbaric? treatments like barbaric punishments from medieval punishments. But what the court has said is that, no, in some cases, the length of the sentence can be so severe, it outrages the standards of decency. And of course, the other aspect of Section 12, cruel and unusual punishment, is that reference to treatment. In other words, it need not be a criminal sentence or criminal proceeding even. And so, Stephanie, uh, often we've talked about different ways in national security space where these rights are implicated. So take, for example, the security certificate system under the Immigration Refugee Protection Act, where there's a prospect that a person named as potentially a risk to national security is detained for a protracted period of time pending their removal. And meanwhile, they may be fighting that removal because that removal may be to maltreatment. And so at what point in terms of the duration of that detention, would it constitute cruel and unusual treatment? not punishment, right? It's detention pending removal. And the Supreme Court in the Sharkawi case said that, well, so long as there's a refresh and a reconsideration of the justification for the continued detention of that individual by the federal court in that case, then it satisfies the requirements of Section 12. Although, by the way, they also did suggest that with the duration of time, the expectations on the state in terms of what it has to show that this person poses a national security risk Uh, and that their release pending removal might be prejudicial to that security, that burden does increase. And so you can see Section 12 arising in different contexts, and it has arisen in other administrative contexts as well. Uh, And so it's quite a broadly textured right. 
Right. It, it, it is, absolutely. And there haven't been that many cases dealing with treatment. I would say conditions in which you serve your sentence could be considered not strictly part of the punishment. They're certainly not framed as such. They could be considered treatment. There was also a case a few years ago, this was a previous federal government that removed the right to health care for certain cl- a certain class of refugees. And at the trial level, I believe a federal court judge held that indeed constituted cruel and unusual punishment or treatment. And then a new government, uh, the newly elected government, uh, rescinded the policy. So we didn't get a further uh, consideration of that on appeal. Stephanie. So I guess, and again, my Oshawa mind still recovered from being blown. Since I, I, I only went to Intrepid Podcast Law School, my other legal education was through the American program Law and Order, which isn't helpful in this context, but it Because, of course, in Canada, we don't have what's often referred to as the Miranda rights. And that comes from a a U.S. criminal trial where you have to, the arresting officer basically has to tell the person being arrested what their rights are. Like, you have the right to remain silent. You have the right to a lawyer. And to me, it's interesting because thinking about how Miranda rights might match up to something like the charter, but then actually the, not all the Miranda rights actually apply to the Canadian context. And I believe there was a 2010 decision by the Supreme Court, R versus Sinclair, uh, that basically says that, no, you don't have the right, for example, to legal counsel throughout your entire custodial presence. So it's interesting to see the way that these rights, we have to be, again, at least I have to be careful in just marrying this on. But so even just the way these legal rights have have come down over time, even though they have, as you mentioned, Craig, this uh, customary history. They're very specific in Canada. And it's one of these issues where I think we have to be very careful in looking at the American experience and accidentally transposing it to the Canadian one. Yes, absolutely. And one of the ways that I can track the trajectory of my law school teaching career is the degree to which law and order references have become increasingly less relevant. And even CSI Miami, like my students aren't watching those shows anymore which is perhaps a good and bad thing. (laughs) (laughs) Is it all the good wife now? And (laughs) probably Tiger King. Uh, We'll see what we're watching in September. (laughs) I don't know. Big charter right violation right there. You're absolutely right that particularly from the 70s on, this concept of Miranda, which of course is a seminal U.S. Supreme Court case, has taken such root in popular culture. There is no Miranda equivalent in the Canadian context. In particular, that recitation that needs to be stated from the outset in order for the arrest and for the constitutional framework to be there, that doesn't exist in Canada. There is a a right under the Charter to be uh, informed of the reason for your arrest or detention and to be informed of your right to retain and instruct counsel. But there are, you know, variations into how once you get that right, then at what point can that be re-invoked? And the case you refer to, Sinclair, is one where the court goes to some pains to say, just so you know, like we're not governed by the Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendments to the United States Bill of Rights. We do have other very powerful protections, but there is a different history. We have a different concept of what a confession is, uh, who's a person in authority, and so forth. So comes from the same general tree, but it takes different shapes and roots and and so forth. Just an anecdote here. My one exposure to show business is a legal show, Canadian legal show in the late 1990s. And it was on a topic that I had worked on in the past as a legal academic and lawyer. And I agreed to look at their script. And they had a a passage where they had, I believe it was an RCMP officer or a 
uh, a Toronto Police Service officer giving Miranda rights to an arrestee in Canada. So my one contribution to show business history was to scratch that out and put in the Canadian Charter Caution. <laughs> I think I even got a credit. So I got a credit. <laughs> Did you? Because it seems so much less dramatic. Oh, by the way, you have charter rights. Not like I can't, believe, I can't believe you haven't been inducted into the Order of Canada. For <laughs> All right. So you mentioned that one of the issues that's come up in Canada has been the issue of the timeliness of the trial. And that's been in the news quite a bit over the last several years. I wonder if you could unpack that. Many people are probably seeing what is playing out. So we have this standard that the Supreme Court has set, and then we have these instances where lower courts have thrown out what seem to be otherwise viable prosecutions on the basis of delay. And that's the kind of thing that I think probably from the perspective of someone who hasn't been following the jurisprudence, who's not intimately familiar with the charter issues, will look at and say, from my perspective, that's casting the system of justice in disrepute. What's going on here? Do you want to walk us through that sequence of events? Yeah, absolutely. So the right itself is very short. Any person charged with an offense has the right to be tried within a reasonable time. So as long as you're within a reasonable time, you're good. But of course, there's the rub. What does reasonable mean in this context? And the Supreme Court has grappled with this for a long time. There was a very controversial case called Askoff, in which the uh, Supreme Court almost inadvertently caused a number of pending cases and convictions to be thrown out because of the way that they've interpreted some of these legal rights. And the court had constructed sort of a whole framework for determining when a trial process had exceeded that reasonable limit. And then in a few years ago, in a case called Jordan, the Supreme Court said, look, we've tried to be very flexible about this to take into account that there's a lot of different variables, but we feel that the justice system itself is not taking this right seriously. And so in a divided decision, they actually came up with caps. So there would be maximum periods of time, depending on the the court that the case was tried in, where if the case exceeded that time period, it would be presumed to be unreasonable. And the remedy for that is a stay of proceedings because the purpose, we get back to the purpose of approach, the purpose of the trial within reasonable time guarantee is to ensure the integrity of the process and the admission of evidence and just the entire structure of that trial. Certain decisions that are out of the Crown's control will not count towards the months that have elapsed. So there is still some room for the court to do the calculation. But if you get over that time, there is now a presumption that the case will be thrown out. And it doesn't matter if it's a murder case or a drug importation case of a gram of cocaine. And we have, in fact, had very serious offenses for which the court has said there has to be a stay because this right was not was not respected. And it's almost the Supreme Court employing a bit of a shock doctrine in that we are going to bootstrap the justice system into working more efficiently. Now, obviously, there's lots of things that are outside the court's control, even outside Crown Attorney's control, that make this a very sort of complex process and almost a dance between all the actors in the justice system. But this is an additional pressure. And we're going to see very soon the effect of COVID-19 and the cessation of all activity in the courts 
which presumably will not count towards that cap, but at some point, the clock's going to start ticking again, and we're going to have a lot of arguments, I think, over this Section 11B or the Jordan principle. And Stephanie, this has come up often in some of our discussions on national security, because, of course, one of the things that can slow a trial down is contested disclosure. And so one of the things we haven't talked about is the Stinchcomb rule in Section 7 of the Charter. And as listeners of this podcast will know, Section 7 and the Stinchcomb rule obliged the disclosure by the Crown of everything, well, everything that's not clearly irrelevant to the defense. That can lead to some delays. And it can be especially onerous in the national security context where information may be protected for national security reasons, which precipitates then collateral proceedings under what's known as the Canada Evidence Act in Section 38. So how all this computes in terms of the Jordan formula is a matter of some preoccupation. Now, as I recall, and Charisma, you can correct me on this, I think the Supreme Court may have suggested that uh, complex cases may be treated a little bit differently, that this isn't a one-size-fits-all. And so national security cases, which are unusually complicated, might not be subject to the sudden death limit. But nevertheless, at some point, these could be problematic issues for any national security prosecution. You know, you're quite right. There is a narrow band of exceptions, also what they call like sort of exceptional circumstances, but the courts made it clear. We'll have to see how far they um, hold true to that. These are meant to be narrow. They want these caps to be enforced, to be respected. So we've covered 11, 12. Section 14, it's basically just language rights. It's just making sure that you actually understand the procedure against you. And it actually makes special provisions for the deaf as well. And I think that's probably a a good thing we can all agree upon. Section uh, 13, to me, this seems to be, and again, having interpreted all of our human rights law through the American pop culture experience, the self-incrimination, the right against self-incrimination. So in the United States, you often see people testifying saying, I take the fifth, I take the fifth. In other words, if I answer this question truthfully, I will incriminate myself and I have a right against that. Section 13 seems to be the same. It says a witness who testifies in any of the proceedings has the right not to have any incriminating evidence. So given to use to incriminate that witness in any other proceedings, except prosecution for perjury or for the giving of contradictory evidence. Is that right? Yeah. So let, so let me draw a couple of distinctions. The first is that if you're an accused person, if you're the one who's actually on trial under Section 11C, you have the right essentially to remain silent. You cannot be compelled to testify, right? And that's where you see all kinds of criminal trials where the accused just doesn't testify and there is no way for the crown, for the state to force them to testify. 13 is about other people in who may be called to give testimony. And where it's different from the fifth is that you don't have a right to refuse to testify. You have a protection against the use of whatever you say in ah, testimony. This is really different from the U.S. It's quite different being used against you. And you notice that it doesn't protect you for prosecution for perjury. Right? So the witness does not have a right to remain silent. The witness has a right not to have any incriminating evidence that may come out of their compelled testimony to be used against. 
So, Stephanie, in the national security space where this has come up, the self-incrimination issue, in real terms, in terms of a case that went to the Supreme Court, is after 2001, the anti-terrorism laws that were introduced as part of the criminal code included something called investigatory hearings, which allowed police in the course of an investigation to compel the presence of a potential witness with access to information that would be relevant to the investigation to answer questions in front of a judge. And so that, uh, by the time it got to the Supreme Court, raised clear issues around self-incrimination and charter rights around protected statements. And so the Supreme Court said that so long as we can read in a a bar on the use of derivative evidence against that person, that that this is okay. Uh, The Supreme Court also said it has to be an open court, by the way. It can't be a a secret proceeding. So with that condition, open court, and you can't use derivative evidence, then this is okay. Now, it turned out not to be a very useful measure. And so it actually was repealed in our former sponsoring member, Bill C-59. So the National Uh Security Act of 2017 repealed investigatory hearings because they turned out to be utterly unhelpful for investigative purposes in anti-terrorism cases. This has been very helpful look at the legal rights in Canada. And I think it does come to a surprise of a lot of people. And it shouldn't just say Oshawa people, but like people generally, that the rights that we often hear about in the U.S. context, they actually apply very differently here. And so this has been a useful episode for that. And in pointing out a lot of the nexuses to the national security cases that we deal with on this podcast on a regular basis. This has been a pretty cool episode. Great. So thanks again, Charisma. So we have one more of our Muskoka Chair Chats. So that'll be next week. And what we'll do, I think, there is talk a little bit about Section 15, the equality rights provision, which we haven't really had a chance to talk about other than alluding to it. And then, of course, an important question is remedies, right? So what happens if there is a charter breach? I think most people are familiar with circumstances in which a court might declare invalid a statutory provision. But of course, there's a more complex discussion to be had about charter remedies. And so that, I think, will be our capstone episode for next week. Sounds great. Well, wonderful. Thanks again for joining us. And we look forward to speaking to everyone next week. See you next time. And don't get arrested. (laughs) Okay. Or if you get arrested, have the copy of your target (laughs) with you and stay silent.